Welcome to Real Estate Milestones, where we explore fascinating topics in commercial real estate with knowledgeable industry experts. I'm your host, Ben Malik, and I'm a young real estate professional who is passionate about adding value to people's lives through the incredible power of real estate. My goal is to help you discover what the heck is going on in the industry and how you can get involved. This is Real Estate Milestones, where your future in real estate lies just around the corner. Welcome back to the show, everybody. Today, we have Nachu Myers, who is the founder of Raises.com. Um, and as you know, capital raising is something we like to talk about on the show. A couple of my mentors are big into capital raising, like Hunter Thompson, who you heard from a couple of weeks ago. But Raises.com is one of the best names that I've heard for SEO. So congrats on that one. Thank you, Ben. Hey, it's, it's nice to be here. Um, I, I look forward to this one for sure. Awesome. So um, let's start with what's your first milestone in real estate? First milestone in real estate was when I worked with an accredited investor as a registrant with the uh, Ontario Securities Commission and uh, taking the investors' information on a subscription agreement, you know, and then helping them work with the salesperson to actually get the get them to sign the documents, get them to wire the funds and send the funds. And then making sure that the deal got closed successfully and counting all of the other investors that were in, uh, you know, this was a real estate uh, syndication based in Ontario. And so that was, awesome. uh, yeah. Cool. So can you tell me a little bit about your background and like, how, how did you, um, you know, and how you got to where you are today in real estate? Yeah, sure. So basically like I actually started, it started off as a software in the software world. Like I, like I graduated like Queens university, in Canada, in, in software, and then, but then I loved business, and then I always had to pull over there. So then, you know, as I was working at some coding company, I jumped over to blockchain and cryptocurrency because the, the market was going crazy, and I noticed that people there are a lot of investors that didn't know what these things were. So I worked with an investment bank to um, to actually help companies, you know, get access to investors because at the time there are a lot of companies that wanted to raise capital. And it was a big problem. And they met, a lot of them didn't know how to legally accept capital from investors because there are only two companies at the time that were registered with the Securities Commission to be able to do so. So I worked with an investment bank to be able to, to like learn how it works, how people raise capital, not just for blockchain, but for all types of deals. Uh, and then after closing you know, several transactions and learning how it works, you know, then I set up raises.com and uh, we focus mainly on either real estate or acquisitions. And so that's, that's how it got started. Cool, cool. So how did you get raises.com? Because that's a pretty cool, yeah. cool name. Thank you. Yeah, the name carries a lot of traffic. So we, we got it from uh, an auction. So this was at sedu.com. And then and then the price, uh, we're, we're, we're not disclosing the price just yet, but we got the domain from a website called sedu.com at an auction. And the way that we happened to close it, it was a seller during uh, the coronavirus. And it was a seller saying that, hey, um, you know, I'm not going to budge on the price. We have a lot of demand on the price. And then, and then say, Hey, you know, if, if you're able to give us, you know, either 30 or 40% discounts and we'll buy it today, uh, you know, then we'll take it. And then that was the line that kind of got them to uh, submit and then to sell it. And then that's how we acquired it. And then uh, renamed our company after it, because the company name we had before, it was a name that people couldn't even pronounce. And so we figured that we might as well change. Yeah, absolutely. I get that. I know I'm familiar with passiveinvesting.com. I know that that name kind of is killing it too. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess I would love to hear a little bit about, um, you know, on the, on the topic of the name and on SEO, like how does SEO play into um, capital raising into business? Like you just tell me 
Like I'm not too, I'm not, I'm more familiar with the internet marketing on the, um, you know, email marketing, Facebook marketing, that kind of stuff. But I'm not as familiar with the SEO. So I'm curious just what you know about SEO and, and how that, you know, plays a role in real estate. Yeah, no, absolutely, man. So, so for sure, there are a few things. Uh, but I guess number one, the age of the domain matters so much because just because raises.com is a really old domain, uh, it carries a lot of like authority on Google. So the fact that it's old just helps it just shoot right up. Like we're right next to Harvard Business Review and all these websites before we, we didn't even have any blog contents or anything. And so at the time of the recording, and if you type in capital raises in Google, you know, we should show between number one or number four, depending on like how good it is at the moment. So it's just the number one is the age. Number two, there is, I mean, it still takes some work with the content still has to be created. These people still have to do their research and create content. Um, there are a lot of pieces of artificial intelligence coming out right now. So, I mean, some of our writers, they're using, you know, all these artificial intelligence, you know, writers, and then they're using it to rank for certain keywords. So instead of people that people I want to, do real estate deals, either if, if people is a, if somebody's a real estate coach, for example, and they want to find coaching clients, or somebody wants to actually originate real estate deals, um, instead of paying for advertisements, uh, which is costly, SEO is more of a long-term game, and it can help you originate the deals. Like, let's say, real estate, um, off-market real estate, Oklahoma, or limited partnerships, Oklahoma, you know, things like that that apply to where, where, where you're working in. That's a good way if you have good SEO or good domain where you can get, um, you know, traffic to your websites to get them to take action. So that's, those are some, just some quick examples if that helps. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think it's funny because when you said like, I really like the idea of um, thinking about it as a long-term solution. Like when you do, yeah. um, when you pay for an ad, that's like, okay, you're done after an hour of the running ad or however much you pay for it. But yeah. uh, with SEO, it's like digital real estate in a way, right? It's there. Yeah. It's actually um, so like the internet is not, I guess, tangible. But if you imagine it as tangible, it's actually has like a kind of a physical location in a way. Like a, it's a place on the internet for it, which is really interesting. A hundred percent. Like we we're just talking, I was just on a mastermind before this uh, podcast with somebody who does SEO for cannabis dispensaries. Right. And because the problem is that it's very regulated. Like if you look at real estates, a lot of people who hire real estate marketers to run Google ads, they get hit with something called the special ad category, which is new from Google and from Facebook because they don't want people to quote unquote discriminate to areas that are richer because you can get better deals sometimes. Uh, so they have this thing where they it's harder to target people who are in rich zip codes and postal codes. Uh, so some people are just going to SEO because of that. So you have all these, these weird... Um, things going on so that's why some in cannabis they have their own regulations too so that's why you see seo really good for um things where ads are hard to run yeah absolutely yeah. um and so how and then i guess that's the first step but then once you're at the website you know how do you make sure it's you know in terms of um i guess targeting your potential client like what's your best practices for making sure your website appears how you want it to appear and is like enticing and um you know, effective at, at what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah, I think it's the scientific method. So, I mean, I guess our three principles really comes down to simplicity, science, and focus. So when you look at simplicity, we just want to remove all variables, remove anything uh, that is unneeded. So we just want to remove anything that is unneeded so that there's little friction as possible. And it's not something that we're, we're, we mastered or anything. We're still learning how to do it, but 
you know, every day we're learning to remove things that aren't needed. The next thing is science. So we, we, I personally had calls probably with thousands of different companies raising capital within the last, like, you know, as couple of years and so on. And so of that, we noticed that they're weird. There are all kinds of weird patterns. For example, um, in, in, the, in the first like 30 seconds of the call or 15 seconds of the call, I can tell if somebody is doing a deal that is like just an unfundable deal. It's weird, like with high probability. And so, you know, one way to avoid that is we start, that's why we started to focus on um, the real estate the sectors to, to begin with. Uh, because if we don't say that we're focusing on real estate or focusing on acquisitions, then we just get these really early stage companies, right? Um, but there are tons of examples or company or people that are actually too sophisticated for what we have. Because we had people that have literally raised billions of dollars trying to approach us um, to help them raise capital, which is something we're actually not interested in sometimes. So, um, but we noticed that they have, there has to be certain like processes and patterns. Like for example, somebody already has their deal prepared and everything because we want to be able to prepare the deal because when we work with investment banks, we have more control over the deal. We're able to add more value and have more control over the deal and give them more autonomy in raising the capital because we know how the private placement memorandum would look like. Uh, so just all these things kind of just fit together and I can go into a rabbit hole, any rabbit hole you like, but um, it's just finding out the patterns and then applying science to feedback into what the results have been, right? Yeah, and so like you can... I guess the scientific method in what I, when I think about how that would go, it would be like AB testing where you have um, two, like some people get one thing, one people get, some people get another thing and whichever one seems to be the most effective is the one that you go forward with and you can test something else against it. Is that, is that what you're talking about? Yeah, essentially. Yeah. It's like having a hypothesis. It's like, it's like saying like, okay, um, we want deals with uh, purchase orders or contracts only or revenue that are, people that are generating revenue. But then when we say that, um, you know, people would say, oh, uh, people would send us deals that are, uh, that have non-binding purchase orders and contracts, because what you think will happen is not the thing that will happen. Or for example, when you say, oh, you know, do you have like money to pay for a lawyer to create your private placement memorandum, uh, in the forums? And we tried this before and then we will get, oh, would it be possible for the lawyer, the lawyers that's like the lawyers that's like, you know, some top, top accounting firm or some law firm, would they pay on closing? Uh, or do you mean they'll pay after? So then we have to qualify, we have to fix that. And so just all these small things, you have to really, um, you, you think you know what will happen, but until you actually get enough calls, then you actually apply. So yeah, I'm totally agreeing. Um, is just seeing, having a guess on what you think would happen and then adjusting. Because if you change everything, if you change, and another thing is changing too many variables. Because if you change too many things too fast about the deals you get, then you wouldn't know what caused what to happen. So that's why it's important to A-B test and it test just one small thing at a time to see what effect that has in the type of types of deals you get. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. That's very yeah. scientific in, in 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 principle where you don't want to test multiple multiple hypotheses because then you don't know what's the causation and or even you can't even assign correlation with a high degree of certainty. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, uh, exactly. So yeah, and so I'm curious, can you tell us about like, uh, you know, an exciting deal or a deal that you've had or a typical deal, or maybe even tell us about, you know, some of the clients that you've served before. Um, you know, we love to hear some of the, the specifics and kind of like learn about, you know, kind of visualize how, how that would work. Yeah. Cause like one, one good one, and this is like more of a classic story, but I like using this one because it shows what's possible. We had one client that, uh, that moved to Canada in 2019 and he had, 
very limited connections to investors or anything, right? And Canada is more conservative than America, generally speaking, when it comes to people raising money. And he found somebody that uh, invested. So this was not a giant deal, but he found he, he raised like around four or five million dollars for a 44 units uh, multifamily acquisition. So like within just within like less than three years of moving to Canada without having like any deep connections or anything, you know, after, you know, working with us and then doing some of his own work, obviously, and getting connections. So that's one of my favorite stories because it just shows like he had the right mindset. He was open. He networked a lot. And um, yeah, I mean, that's just, there's no example that's better than that. I mean, that's just one example. But other than that, yeah, we have tons of people that like we have Abdiel as well. So we have some people that are doing those multifamily acquisitions. We have folks that are like, you know, uh, somebody called Abdiel with Arch Capital, big fan of uh, Richard Wilson. He's been at his conference for six years. And he managed to raise, you know, I think he got several commitments. I don't want to misrepresent or anything, but uh, I'm guessing probably an eight-figure commitment range, I'm guessing. Uh, don't quote me on that for, you know, several funds that he's working on uh, as well. And, you know, there's story after story of different people that are raising different funds. And altogether, we've been involved in, um, I mean, over $600 million in transactions, but over $200 million in closed volume, just through the, you know, the coaching, the advisory, setting up the deals and, actually finding the right people to close them themselves. So, um, yeah. Um, do you want me to talk more about the syndication folks or the uh, fund folks? Yeah, I would love to hear about both. But, um, yeah, I kind of want to hear, you know, who would benefit from your services. Like, what is the thing, like, why, or, yeah, what kind of person is not going to be able to do it themselves? And, you know, and then what, and then how do you work with them? Yeah, so, okay. So, here are the different, so, stages of evolution for this. So, number one. Somebody who is, you know, you're, you're raising capital for, uh, let's say you, 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 you're buying houses with your own capital. Uh, some people are happy doing that. But then if you want to raise more capital to do a larger acquisition on a larger deal, and you can't afford to make that down payments, that's when people would usually need to do a syndication so that they'll be able to, you know, have a larger syndication, have larger, to, to reach out to other equity investors to put more money into that down payment so you can buy you know, a multifamily deal, or you can do a commercial deal because very few people have like, you know, a few million bucks liquid that they can put. So that's really the base level of like the people that we can work with at raises.com is to get beyond that uh, self-invested capital. Um, and so the way that we do it, and I can go into the way we do it, but then that's the first step. And then after that, once somebody's done multiple syndications, then we, then we work on getting them to do a fund uh, because then they have the track record and experience to, Get investors to trust them to put money wherever they want, right? And then after they, they, they do a fund and so on, then it's really just repeating it, diversifying it, taking them public, creating REITs, uh, and going from there. So. Cool. So you've have you been involved in any REIT transactions? Yeah, there there are two. There was one with you know a fellow called Chris Goodman, and that one is fun because we so we set that one up, and then it's it's a hundred million dollar real estate investment trust, and we managed to take down the legal fees from 40,000 to 20,000. So that was good. And then in the introductory phase, it's a lot of work though. And so we managed to partner with, uh, or we got him to partner with an investment bank uh, because they're able to close it. They closed and this particular investment bank. Um, I don't even know what I can and can't say because it's confidentiality, but, but this investment bank is really good. They, they closed uh, 30 billion every year. And so they're working on closing it with them. Uh, but in the meanwhile, there are different introductions that are being made because he has 
uh, a bunch of investor relations team members that are just going out and selling. Um, but what I noticed is for them, they were like, oh, we have a family office that's interested, but then we want to work on like, you know, a few medical facilities, like these two medical facilities you have, we want them. So, so we, we kind of ran into a situation where there's like a bit, a bit of cherry pick in there. Uh, even though they're highly experienced, they're like, hey, these two deals are, are pretty amazing. Yeah, let's proceed with this family office. So I'm pretty sure that it's getting under the LOI phase for them. But um, that's one example. Another example is a debt fund uh, with somebody called Phil. And then they work with, uh, I believe it was Maven Capital. Uh, so basically they lend money, they get money, from, they get loans from institutional lenders. And then they take these, this debt, they, they want, and then they lend it out to um, hard money lenders. And then the difference in between the two interest rates, that's what they give to investors. So the purpose of this fund is really to get a larger loan, a hundred million dollar one, um, or is it is probably potentially even more, but at least a hundred million dollar loan, but then they have to get like 25 million at least. So that, because that's the down payment for the loan that they need to purchase from the institution. And then they, they're, uh, then they'll deploy the loan by lending it out. And the reason why they're doing this is because of the interest rates being super high, right? At this, at the time of this recording. So they're capitalizing on that. So they just, they're more early than uh, Chris Goodman and they just got started. And then, um, those are two read stats are underway right now. Yeah, that's pretty exciting. Definitely some sophisticated transactions. Um, yeah. And so it's interesting. And so, um, yeah, I'm curious about, you know, what have you learned throughout this process in terms of like, did you have the background to accomplish these, you know, large deals or, you know, how did you gain this expertise and, you know, how, how what's your, what kind of team are you working with? Yeah. So then this one, you could say trial by fire is a good word. Uh, I had to learn a lot on the job, but okay, here are a few things. I guess here, probably the biggest thing I learned is the, not like, I mean, obviously like trusting other people that know how to do it when it comes to the, it's funny when it comes to compliance, the compliance side doesn't seem as like crazily like hard as you would think. It's more of the, uh, like the financial side where I don't have as much experience. So for example, you look at the, to, to, to understand compliance, I look at it from the top down. So like, for example, I look at every country and then in every country, the countries openly tell you what you can and can do. And part of it is because at the time of this recording, we're actually registering with the Ontario Securities Commission and we're going through that process. So knock on wood, it goes well, we become registered. But basically in a nutshell, like I learned that you just follow what the country says in terms of what you can do. For example, if you're a real estate investor and then you wanna raise capital from other investors, you have to just follow what the SEC says at a, at a federal level. And then at the, the statewide level, you have to follow what your state says. Um, and then you, you, you know, you, you just go to follow something called the blue sky laws. And then once you do those two things, that's like 90% of it. So that's number one. Number two, when it comes to the transactions, it's understanding financials. And then I just delegate a lot of it. I understand the high level and the numbers that matter, but I actually just delegate a lot of it. When it comes to the capital raising part of it, I delegate a lot of it too. Because they're, they're just, they're just like, I mean, after getting hundreds of people doing this, it's impossible. I can't do anything like alone. So I just delegate it to teams and to people and to investment banks that know it. So I guess the hard part is really just knowing how to delegate and knowing how to see things from the top down and transfer risk and add value and transfer risk. And that's 90% of how I do it. Awesome. And so what's your, what do you say is your biggest value add component? I think it's for people who don't even know how to talk to an investor or an accredited investor and who haven't raised money before to 
do all that for them and to do all the, the legal drafting, uh, you know, the legal drafting, the, the marketing, you know, the relationships, get that all to everybody uh, for people who haven't even done so before uh, at a quicker, cheaper cost than they ever can see. So I think that's the main value. Awesome. And so what's the most effective marketing channel for most of your clients? Definitely LinkedIn. Uh, LinkedIn is by far the best uh, that we've seen. Um, yeah, like I, I can't see anything better than LinkedIn. So, and right how do you now. use LinkedIn? Yeah, we, so we have a team. We have a team of, we call them either, some people call them setters. That's like the new word that they call them. Uh, but most people know them by business development reps. And so they just like go on the accounts all day and then they just do out more outbound messaging. Uh, and because like the domain carries like a lot of like reputation, then people get hit with the retargeting advertisements after they go on a website. And so that's how people kind of get nurtured uh, long-term. And so that's, that's really interesting. So you don't yeah. um, use like email marketing as much to like bring them into your, to your realm of, you know, like once you have their email, it's free marketing, right? You can just continue to talk to them, but you know, it sounds like you have other ways of targeting which seem more complex, but maybe more powerful because you can, you know, be in multiple places. I'm, I'm curious to hear about like the system. Yeah, yeah, sure. So, cause basically the, we don't do much outbound email because it, I mean, it just, it's just like social, social media outbound, like via LinkedIn or Facebook seems to get better results, but basically all it is, I mean, is this like a bunch of people on LinkedIn that are doing business development work and then they're doing outreach, number one. Number two, people that are doing the same, but on Facebook. And number three, you know, we have, you know, advertisements on Google that are more search-based. So search-based advertisements for people that are looking for like real estate capital raising help, Toronto, real estate capital raising help or real estate capital raising company, New York, you know, things like that. And then it shows up on a Google, uh, Google search ad. Uh, and then those may, are mainly it. And then after, I guess, after that, everything else is either YouTube um, retargeting ads. And then after YouTube retargeting ads, there's also uh, Google display retargeting ads. So these are ads, ads that show all over the internet. And then there's just email. We just send people a lot of contents via email and, uh, and YouTube. So it's like, oh, hey, free syndication templates or free this, free that, right? Just to give people value. Even if they don't work with us, then we try to leave people better off than when they met us. Yeah, absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. And um, that's how it's how it's done nowadays, you know? Yeah. Definitely important to add value and, and um, you know, educate people because, you know, they're like, I guess that's a great way to show credibility and also a way to, you know, actually help people. Yeah, no, 100%. Awesome. So I'm, I'm curious about how deal volume for you or investor sentiment um, has evolved over the last couple months with, with uh, interest rates going up and, you know, where we're at now and kind of what you think is going to happen going forward. Yeah. So we see there are a lot of assumptions, but I think one thing is, I guess there are two things. <laughs> one is that we, we help people in the real estate sector, but then we also help people in the mer mergers and acquisitions world. So we noticed that there are more people that seem to be transitioning from real estate to mergers and acquisitions on our side. That's number one. And I think it's just because people are finding like the rent rolls and things like that are not supporting the, the interest rates in the market or people are scared of that. So that's one thing we noticed. The second thing we noticed is we're focusing on telling people to be more focused on their mandates because when the market, when the interest rates were really low, people's mandates were really broad because people would just 
the overconfidence and the market was doing, it was really easy to, to get capital in. Uh, so what we noticed that when things are tight, investors are more conservative and skeptical. So the track record has to be leveraged more. And for track record to be leveraged more, then things have to be more narrow because there are less things than most people are good at. For example, if somebody's saying, hey, I want to invest in uh, class C hotels uh, and class C hotels, class B hotels and class A hotels. And then for the class C's, I want to do like some opportunistic high risk type of value add stuff. Um, the people who, you know, repairs and things, the people who are used to, um, if the team doesn't have that much experience in the value add, in the high risk value add things, uh, and then they're saying that they will do it, it'll be harder to get investors to trust them. Whereas if, if they're talking to, if they're only, if they've only worked on high value add things or high, low risk things like class A deals, and then they have that only as their only type of deal that they're doing, it will be easy for them to get the yes because there's more experience in that sector and people will be less skeptical. So in a nutshell, basically all I'm trying to say is people are just more narrow with what they want to do and then they're less like broadened all over the place and there's less variation. And there are a few more things, but uh, does that answer the, the, I guess, the basic question? Yeah, absolutely. It makes a lot of sense. And um, I guess going forward, what are you hearing from your clients in terms of what they're expecting? You know, are you hearing a lot of, um, you know, are you hearing any more, I guess, increase in difficulty from past investors or are people still um, looking for, for, I guess, looking for yield in, in any, any given time? Well, I mean, I see the, the origination seems to be harder, like, because I had like the, the fellow that managed to close that 44 units, he came to us with a few deals and we noticed that people are, seem, it seems to be harder for people to originate deals because um, for some reason, the occupancy rates has been you know, not as strong as it has been before. Uh, in terms of like the returns and the numbers and such, I mean, we're seeing like, you know, the typical kind of mid-teens, mid-teens RR, mid-teens, um, like I guess the cash and cash, you know, and then mid-teens and then the, the like a two times like return on equity. Like we're seeing the typical terms. So I'm not too sure if the terms have changed too much. Um, I think it's just what we just know is that the origination seems to be harder because people, because the deals that worked before uh, weren't working as well. And then another thing is like, there are a lot of these like refis that are happening uh, because of the, the change in the rates. And so when, after the deals, after these refis, it's like, it's like, Oh, these deals, you know, it doesn't make sense financially anymore. Um, I guess the last thing is government towns are doing pretty well. Like people don't get laid off as much in the government towns. And then, um, yeah, like I, I'm, I'm just calling right now. I'm in Ottawa, Ottawa, Canada, right now, a government town, and then we had a lot of deals in um, uh, Washington D.C. as well. Uh, a lot of oh, cyber. That's security. where I'm at. Oh, really? Well, what's funny mm -hmm. is that we have a lot of cybersecurity people there uh, doing M and A. But, uh, but yeah, no, in real estate, I mean, it's really you know it's safer, right? So more focus on the area, government places, you know, low risk. Right? So. Yeah, yeah, I know. People were thinking that D.C. was a uh on you know on the downturn and then you know when stuff like this happens you you realize the strength of dc versus yeah. um you know i guess some more opportunistic places where yeah maybe over the last 10 years you you made more money but it all what matters is you get to keep your assets in a downturn yeah no exactly like it's not about what you make it's about what you keep right absolutely there's so many different layers to that expression and it's it's very <laughs> it's very true yeah awesome so um, I'm curious if you have a perspective on terms of when a recession may, may end or kind of like 
what um i you know i don't think anyone can really predict anything but it's really interesting to hear multiple perspectives of, of what's going on in the market yeah no sure so like nobody it's funny i was rereading the book that i really respect it was um annie duke's book uh called um thinking in vets and one thing i like about that book when it comes to thinking about the recession is like sometimes life is it's like less about like a game of chess it's more of a game of poker where you can actually make a good guess and it can still be wrong so basically the point is, is like we, we can just think in probabilities we can't know uncertainties so i guess if we look at the past recessions we just see that a lot of them they last for like you know what is it like 18 months you know a year and a half to like two years so all people can do number one they can understand that it's rare to see a recession where it took this long for the uh you know, for the for the people that had jobs, it, it declined. Like I guess the employment rate to be at this weird kind of, yeah, it's declining now to some extent, but like to be at this weird level. But then if you look at if people look at the historicals, we usually just recommend people to keep into account that all the past recessions have been for a certain time frame of this like weird eighteen months type of period. So if people plan their investments, most of these deals that people were working on, the syndications, a lot of them are five years. So if people were to just make some strong projections that are longer than the typical average time of a recession, then it would make sense for it to do better after the recession. Because unless you have such bad luck that this is the only recession in like X amount of time that has been this long, uh, longer than two years, longer than three years, then you, you know, you made a good decision. Even if the out, even if we have the worst luck in the world, that this is the one recession in a while that lasted or that one of the few recessions that is lasting longer than three years, uh, that your five-year term buy and hold deal is going to do that much worse. Um, you made a good decision, even if the outcome doesn't lead to that. So all I can say is you just look at the past recessions and the fact that they've been 18, 18 uh, months, roughly on average, and then try to make it so that after that two-year period on your new deals in 2023 going forward, that uh, you have a plan you know, to give a high return on equity after that term um, of five years. Yeah, absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. And I think that to add to that, it's really, you know, got to look at the causes of the recession. If you want to be able to predict, I guess, the outcome and what's going to happen in the future. And I think yeah. that it's pretty obvious that the main cause of the recession, if not the sole, the only cause is, you know, interest rates going up, which is a decision by the Fed. And, you know, if we're going to, if we're going to think about it, that um, if the Fed is the cause of the recession by increasing interest rates, that they also have the same button that they can press the other button, right? Decrease interest rates. And if you look in in the past, interest rates have never, or the Fed have ne has never increased interest rates for more than I think 18 months as well. They always- Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So if you like, look, I'm sure like, this is going to be a really cynical take, but <laughs> the fact that, um, you know, every time the, the Fed raises interest rates, the recession happens. And then whenever they lower interest rates, the recession can go away it's like wait i thought we we're here for economic stability and that was their goal where they're actually maybe creating some of the the problems in, in some respect but um obviously there's nuance to that but it's just it's, it's interesting to think about um yeah. but yeah i think that eventually the fed won't be able to keep interest rates this high especially given that the federal government has to service their own debt and they don't want to do that at a very yeah. high interest rate either yeah yeah tell me about it yeah and then well it's a site it's it's like so deep in the in the Whatever system this is, like it, it seems to work to some extent, but it's like it's so deep in the thing because it's like the more then there's this whole inflation thing, right? And then it's like, oh, it's just to stop the inflation, but it's like we're creating the inflation, but then we're creating the inflate the 
the uh, interest rate, but then we're creating the recession. So you, you see how it's like everything's being created almost by them. <laughs> but <it's just> yeah, like... <laughs> absolutely. I mean, so the, yeah. <laughs> inflation by definition is the expansion of the money supply, right? The people yeah. who ha- control the money printers, the people who control the money supply are the Fed. Like the inflation yeah. that they created, like the inflation is not like a chance occurrence. It is a, it was a, it is a cause, yeah. um, like phenomenon by the Fed for so many, there's so many reasons why they would do it. It make, it decreases their debt load, the federal government's debt load. It create, it makes spending much cheaper and easier. It, I mean, it, I guess like it's a way to exercise power on the rest of the world if, if you want to get super cynical, but um you know, really it makes sense to kind of really like when the Fed has this much power to control global money supply, it definitely makes a lot of sense to, to listen to what they say and try to, you know, un- predict their moves. Cause I think that's, that's a kind of the, I guess, highest correlation with the market is their actions, you know, in terms of macroeconomic trends. Yeah, and, and exactly. Like, it's kind of like Apple saying like, I'm just seeing this, this Apple dongle right here on my desk. Cause it's like, Apple Apple removed the headphone jack from the from the phones. You know they created that problem, and then they're selling the solution. So then yeah. that's going to cause more problems. People losing their dongles, and then it's like, okay, then they're going to sell more dongles. So it's like it's almost as if like a giant thing is just creating problems and creating solutions and to the problems that they created. You know? So. Yeah, it's really interesting. Yeah. Um, I guess when there's something as powerful as the Fed, the only way that I guess the only way to check the power would be some some contrary power and i guess i'm kind of trying to see like you know where where's the balance you know i'm I'm curious about the balance in terms of how the system operates and i guess maybe that's bitcoin's <laughs> policy right well people are trying oh sorry finish the the thought yeah just that you know there's another option now so that you know you're if you if you if you reach too far there people can you know try to seek another solution until federal government bans it yeah and then people are trying exactly because i had a talk of with my my c my cfa matter he we were talking about this exact topic because he's more into macroeconomics and then he he helps some of the clients here uh he's really he's a really good he's based in vancouver and he was talking about the same thing about like okay well he was more optimistic on it on on you know crypto and everything but then you know sometimes like i, I get doubts because it's like at the time of the recording you, you have the thing that happened with ftx you had a 30-year-old, uh, uh, supposedly 30-year-old multi-billionaire that uh, disappointed the, the Ontario Teachers Pension Fund, Sequoia, some of the biggest investors. Mm-hmm. So you have that, number one. Number two, you, you look at how Zuckerberg and Meta tried to you know, launch their own digital assets, which the regulators like completely like didn't allow to happen at all. And now Zuckerberg is now going to Meta uh, you know, and to VR for their new cash sources because they don't want to over depend it seems like they don't want to over depend on ad revenue uh number three you're seeing like i, I don't know much about the political side but then you're seeing that you know it, it's not necessarily something that keeps the government in control too so i don't think it'd be that easy it's my point for for the uh the transfer yeah yeah i mean it's really interesting to bring in the fact that um like FTA, ftx and uh sam baker freed were he, the largest donor to the Democratic Party, who had yeah. the power to not enforce things or enforce things. He's yeah. like creating the, he was like the biggest advocate for regulation, but he's pretty much going to create the regulations in some way that helps him. That was kind of, you know, something that seemed like was, was happening. And then it's, um you know, really interesting to think that 
he you know like i don't know what this is gonna the effect it's gonna have on terms of the regulatory appetite for these kinds of things from the people yeah. who make those decisions and i think that's honestly the biggest variable and why the biggest threat i think like continually the reason why it's so uncertain in, in crypto is because we have no certainty of when this is going to last, how long it's going to last, such a short track record, so yeah. much uncertainty with how the government's going to react. And it's um, it's very, it's very interesting, right? Uh, I don't really think anyone can predict what's, what's going to, how it's going to play out. Well, I know is technology seems to hold some power. Yeah. Yeah. Because I mean, if you think, because Bitcoin is only 12 years old or something. So it's like SBF, like at 30, was probably one of the world's few experts, right? Because it's like 10 years, I was 20, I was 19. So, and then, and then, you know, it's crazy because without going into the rabbit hole, it's like they sent audits because like I'm going through an auditing process right now. And then they sent audits that showed that Alameda didn't have, didn't intermingle funds. And then those audits were false. So it's like, you know, and then now the lady at Alameda uh, got charged for like, I think, 110 years in prison mm. today. Okay. Or something. So, yeah, so, um, it's crazy. Um all I know is that it's going to scare people away from it for the next, like, I think five, five years at 10 years, at least. So, um, I believe in it. I just think people are going to be scared. And, um, and, uh, I think it's more different countries that are going to rise up. I mean, uh, visit one of my family members visited Dubai and then, I mean, they use crypto for everything, even going in the elevator or something. So, wow. Like, and yeah. I guess on that note, if you, I mean, you really think there's a, that's a long ter term, you know, I guess, period for possible fear for crypto which i i could see i could see it lasting that long but what they you know what they say when uh be fearful when others are greedy and be greedy when others yeah. are fearful so it might this might be the, the opportunity to get in if there was one but um i'm no i'm the expert on that but on that you ready for the lightning round let's do it so if you could have any superpower what would you choose time travel awesome and why is that because I'll be able to meet anybody from any time and know anything. And I'll also be able to go in the future and find out everything. Mm, is that, is that it's going to be fun knowing everything you think? Not everything, but uh, <laughs> there's some things that may not want to know, but, uh, but heck, I will just know, Hey, invest in Bitcoin in, you know, 2008, for example, starters or, Oh, um, EM, exempt market dealers in Canada are going to exist uh, at X time. So do this, you know, all these things, you know, or, Oh, this crash wrap and that, you know, that will help. I say simplest things, just knowing the betting outcomes for oh, well, that, games. <laughs> I mean that too. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well. That's a good one. But um, but yeah, there might be things that can never be known. I'll leave it at that. So, yeah. what's your favorite book, or what's the one that's helped you the most? Probably Principles, Ray Dalio. That one, yeah, I think that one helped me the most. Awesome. And so, what motivates you to continue every day? What motivates me? I think two things. One is, um, I mean, like I'm kind of like I have a somewhat of a religious kind of background. I'm, uh, you know, Christian, and I think like when I, worst case, if I lose all my all the money, all everything, business, and everything, then uh, it kind of helps me stay grounded, so that it's like you know, so I don't kind of go off the deep end. Uh, so that's one thing. The second thing is also when it comes to um, meaning, because I want to create something that can democratize investment banking so it's like because like because i don't see a lot of people getting into investment banking that should 
Um, so I think that problem needs to be solved. And if, until it's solved, I won't, basically I won't stop. So that's, those are the two things. Awesome. So what advice would you give to someone who wants to follow in your footsteps? I would say, yeah, I would say start as early as possible. Like, like if you're somebody who is in your early, if you're earlier than you, I was talking to somebody before this call in, in a little mastermind and he invested in real estate when he was 18. And uh, he sends me limited partnership uh, deals and we, we, we work on that basis. So I think get into real estate investing and learn about securities law as early as possible and learn as much as possible and create either create a law firm, create a, 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 a capital raising practice, create anything as early as possible because the regulators are, it's always going to take a lot of time because the regulators are going to make it a really slow process. So learn that stuff as early as possible uh, and then that should be the earliest thing you should do. So that's my answer. Awesome. And since I put you on the spot, I'm going to give you a chance for revenge. So what's one question you have for me? I have this question. So what is, so what is something that you believe in that everybody would doubt you on? Mm, okay. You can so... just it could be any topic. Yeah. Um, hmm. That's a really interesting question. And I feel like that's the kind of question you got to think about for days. And I'm definitely gonna. Um, I feel like my instinct is to go in a philosophy, in a, down a philosophy route for this one. Um, well, it's one I studied finance and philosophy in school. So definitely um, that's where a lot of my profound questions uh, originate. But um I guess something that people would doubt is that philosophy is the good of human life. That wow. really thinking about human life, reflecting on human life, understanding, you know, learning and growing and growing yourself is for me more pleasant, not more pleasant, but more, it provides more happiness, more satisfaction than what most people consider happiness, which is pleasure and fun and, and uh, I guess like, you know, just experiences where I'm really deriving a lot of my, my fundamental happiness from the growing from the actual process of growing where, you know, the end people like aim, like I want to achieve some goal. And the way I see it is like, my goal is the process where I'm achieving the thing that I want to achieve is every day, get progress towards more knowledge, more growth, more wisdom, more i guess become the i'm striving to be the best i can be and the accomplishment is pointing that direction and going in that direction i think that's somewhat different because a lot of people kind of set their the i guess their goal out in the future and then they, they need to accomplish it where i'm accomplishing it as it is also something that's in the future that can never really be achieved but the fact that I'm aiming at it is an achievement in itself and that I don't really need to get that completion in order to get that fulfillment. Okay. So it's kind of like, it's kind of, I mean, it's kind of like being mindful in a way. Eh? Uh, it sounds, sounds like, and it's also kind of like not overthinking is kind of the gist I'm getting. I would not say not overthinking. It definitely involves a lot of overthinking, oh. but I think that the fundamental, tr there, there's no fundamentally, there's no overthinking where, thinking it's just thinking right it's just like yeah. just reflecting and learning and, and growing and that um that you know i mean i have goals within 
life that are more tangible, but, um, you know, fundamentally I define my success by being on an upward trajectory throughout my whole life. And that's how I'm going to look back and, and, and see my experience that, you know, am I the best I can be Did I like, you know, do all I can to, to learn, to grow, to improve. And I think, you know, the greater I can become through self-reflection and knowledge and wisdom, the more I can apply my skills that I, and, you know, use what I become to benefit most people and continue, continue the cycle of perpetual growth. Nice. I, I love it, man. It's, it's almost as if one lifetime is too short. <laughs> like so yeah, much. Absolutely. Right? <laughs> one lifetime is too short, but you know, every lifetime is inherently too short in the scale of infinity. You know, there's no, there's no relative, like there, like any, any digit, any number, any amount is, you know, is nothing compared to forever. So it's like, if you're not, if you're not forever, all these finite things are essentially the same in relativity to forever that you're not getting too metaphysical, but that, um, yeah, like in whatever we have, like, you know, I want to achieve, I want to aim towards the infinite as much as possible. Yeah. And, and for like, maybe the other listeners are, that are, that are more to the earth. It's like, it's kind of like, you see like a guy in a, in a, in a luxury car is like, he's looking at the guy in a yacht and the guy in a yacht is looking at the guy in the plane. So, you know, it's like infinity. It's like money. It's, <laughs> right. Yeah. It never ends. So, you yeah. know, that's why I got to enjoy the process. That's it, man. I totally yeah. agree. Awesome. Well, on that, um, really appreciate you coming on the show. Uh, where can people find you? I mean, I think it's pretty obvious at this point where to find you, but yeah. Yeah. So this one, yeah. Raises.com. R-A-I-S-E-S.com. Uh, that's where uh, that's where we are. Awesome. Well, um, not to and everyone listening, keep making awesome. Before you go, I just wanted to say thanks again for tuning in to another awesome episode of Real Estate Milestones. If you've been enjoying the show and you'd like to offer your support, please leave a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It's the best way to increase the show's visibility and help the message get out to a greater audience. I really appreciate your time and support and keep making milestones. The information provided on this podcast is intended to be educational and informational only and is not considered to be formal legal advice. The listener should not take or refrain from taking action based on its content. Any listener in need of legal opinion upon which to rely in decision-making should consider formally engaging an attorney to review relevant facts in detail and examine the pertinent law as it applies to those facts.